Shall we begin with prayer? Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, you have called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. You have satisfied our hunger and the deep longing of our thirst. You have invited us into your very presence and have made an open way for us through the blood of that everlasting covenant, precious blood of your dear Son, our Lord Jesus. We treasure the opportunity to draw near unto you, to find in you a perfect refuge, a great delight, one who showers us with the glory of your love, your everlasting affection, your grace and eternal mercy. O Lord, who are we? that you should so think of us and treat us in such a magnificent way. We are but miserable sinners in your sight. But we rejoice in Christ who has covered us over. Covered us over with his perfect righteousness, covered us over with his cleansing blood, covered us over the life of resurrection. A cover over. An everlasting covering. From this one. Who is your everlasting son. So bless us. In his name. By his spirit. As we cry out to you Abba Father. Bless us for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now we want to round off our examination of the tabernacle and then move on through the bulk of this ninth chapter of Hebrews. And we'll begin this evening at verse 5. And a comment about the cherubim. You'll keep your finger there in Hebrews 9, and turn back for a moment to Ezekiel chapter 10. These interesting beings <clears throat> called the cherubim, <clears throat> the I am gives them the plural quality. There are more than one of them. You recall we first met them in the Bible <clears throat> guarding the tree of life <clears throat> as Adam and Eve were exiled to a journey east of Eden, and the cherubim there guard the flaming sword that protects the way to the tree of life. Here in Ezekiel 10, in Ezekiel's vision of the wheels turning way up there in the middle of the air, a famous Negro spiritual, but associated with these wheels that are whirling are the cherubim. And in that 21st verse of Ezekiel 10, you will notice that they are described, or shall we say characterized for us in terms of appearance, 
They have four faces and four wings, and beneath their wings the form of human hands. So uh, the four faces and the four wings are probably related to the four directions of the compass which is also uh, that which is peculiar to these whirling wheels. They seem to move through the cosmos in all four directions, and the cherubim uh, seem to uh, be associated with their movement or vice versa. But notice also the 19th verse of this chapter. Uh, They stand at the entrance to the east gate of the house of the Lord, and the glory of the God of Israel hovered over them. This passage is virtually a duplication of the imagery in Hebrews 9.5, where the cherubim of glory are overshadowing the mercy seat of the tabernacle, overshadowing the cherubim is the glory of God. They are attached or identified with the glory presence of the Lord. Perhaps they are the guardians of his very throne. Uh, They are around his footstool. Uh, The uh, suggestion there of Ezekiel uh, and also the fact that in uh, Genesis 3:24, they are protecting the way to the true life, suggests an intimate association with the uh, glory of God, and the writer is uh, emphasizing that here as he underscores their glory character. Now, that leaves the last uh, piece of the furniture, namely the lid to the Ark of the Covenant, which is called the mercy seat here. And this word, which occurs in this verse in the Greek, is a duplication of the very same word used by the Apostle Paul in Romans 3.25. And it's instructive for us to go back to Romans 3.25 and to take a look at that passage, uh, reminding ourselves that the word Paul uses here is exactly the same as that which the writer of Hebrews uses to label the mercy seat. And Frank, if you have gotten to uh, Romans 3.25, would you read that for us, please? God presented him as a sacrifice and atonement. Through faith in his blood, he did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the, the sins committed beforehand unpunished. Thank you. Now, the translation there, I think you have the NIV, is that correct? The translation there says sacrifice of atonement, which really doesn't tell us what kind of sacrifice it is. In other words, the NIV, as usual, is giving its kind of interpretation or dynamic equivalence paradigm there. And so I want to have Ben read his New American Standard. If you'll read Romans 3.25 for us, Ben, in the NASB. Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed. The word there is propitiation in the New American Standard, and consequently we actually have a more literal translation of the Greek word 
than sacrifice of atonement. As I said, that phrase, sacrifice of atonement, doesn't really tell us what kind of sacrifice it is. If we had a revised standard version or we had the New English Bible here this evening and somebody would read this passage, we would find in Romans 3.25 that Christ has been displayed as an expiation. The term expiation is used by those more modern translations. Well, what is at issue here? At issue here is a theology of the atonement. And so the NIV, in simply saying it's a sacrifice of atonement, does not really do justice to the thrust of the Greek word that is used here. For the mercy seat being labeled by the same Greek word is expressing something particular about how one obtains mercy. Does one obtain mercy simply through a sacrifice of atonement? Well, the sacrifice of atonement is not defined. So therefore, we're going to have to go a step further and ask, what is atonement? The NIV, therefore, doesn't satisfy the force of the Greek word. Well, what about the translation of the Revised Standard Version of the New English Bible, the more modern translation of expiation? Is the mercy seat, is finding mercy before God an expiation? Is that what is involved when one approaches the mercy seat or when does one approach the mercy seat? Who approaches the mercy seat? When does that occur? Okay, when does that occur? Once a year, the high priest And what does he have? He has blood. He has blood to apply to the mercy seat. All right, so what we have here is the application of blood to the mercy seat. Why do we apply blood to obtain mercy? Why does the high priest sprinkle the mercy seat with blood? Life is in the blood. Life is in the blood, which means that the life that was sacrificed, the life that is given by the animal whose blood the high priest carries, that blood is a symbol of its life. Its life? Terry? Christ's life. Christ's life, I like that. Let's think in terms of <coughs> high priests bringing it. Whose life? His life and the life of the children of Israel. All right, so it's the blood is an indication of the life, and the life is an indication of what is required by God in order to pay the price for the offense against his law. In other words, the life must be paid for the life that is spared. This life which dies is uh, redeeming the life which is spared. So it suffers. It pays the penalty of what is required by that spared life by offering its life in its place. Therefore, we have something more than just bare sacrifice of atonement here because we're not defining what the atonement is. Is the atonement then expiation? What is expiation? Put aside. Put aside? How? Push away. Push away? How? 
to expiate, to wash away, to wash away. Well, does the atonement of blood wash away sin? Yes, it does wash away sin, but it washes it away as a result of its life being given for the life of the one who is spared. So why did the New American Standard translate it propitiation in Romans 3.25? Here in Hebrews 9.5, we could translate it, it is a propitiatory. What does this word propitiation mean? Something given for somebody else. Something given for somebody else. You're on the right track. Ben? It's the uh, turning, turning away of God's wrath. Turning away of God's wrath. So, God's wrath has to be satisfied. Something has to pay the penalty to take away the wrath of God so he is propitiated. He is pacified with respect to what is due. What is due? To us. Death. Death is due. That's exactly what's going on at the altar, isn't it? We are acknowledging, the high priest is acknowledging on our behalf that he deserves death, we deserve death, all of Israel deserves death. Why? Because we violated the will of God. We've exposed ourselves to the penalty of the law. How do we pay the penalty? Through the blood of the substitute. What flows out of the satisfaction of the blood of the substitute. Mercy. Not only mercy in terms of cleansing of the guilt of our sin, but also paying the price, satisfying God's justice. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. If we are not going to die under that sentence, and somebody's got to pay in our place, somebody has to take our place, somebody has to substitute in our place. So the high priest... <coughs> is bringing this propitiatory gift which pays the price in our place and sprinkles that propitiatory blood on the mercy seat in order to indicate that God's wrath has been satisfied and our sins have been covered by the blood of a substitute. All right, now the reason that the RSV and the NEB choose the word expiation is because the liberals who were behind that translation did not like the word propitiation. Why did they not like the word propitiation? Back to you, Ben. They don't like the idea of rest. Yes. Okay, what were you going to say? Because we don't know what it means. They knew what it meant. And Ben's right. They knew what it meant so well that they wanted to get it out of the vocabulary of the church. They don't want any notion of an angry God or a God who requires satisfaction for his justice. Some penalty has to be paid. Jesus isn't paying any penalties according to their theology. Jesus is simply giving example of God's mercy to cleanse away, wash away sin. Now, we're not objecting to the fact that Jesus' sacrifice or the sacrifice of this atonement in the Old Testament does cleanse or wash away sin, but that's not all it does. Because that's not all you need. That's not all I need. I don't only need my sin and guilt cleansed. I also need somebody to take my place and pay the penalty. 
of my sin and death. And that's the reason propitiation is important to the definition of this Greek word which is used here. All right, any other questions about the uh, tabernacle imagery here? We've had a very thorough workout in these five verses on the furniture and the architecture of the tabernacle. Well, he says there at the end of that fifth verse that he cannot speak of other details about the tabernacle. And here he warns us against over-topologizing the tabernacle, finding some kind of esoteric meaning in every thread of the curtains, every socket in the tabernacle construction, every utensil that was used in the tabernacle, this danger of going overboard with respect to the uh, meaning of all of the imagery of the tabernacle is resisted by our writer, and it is a warning to us to be very careful in pushing the envelope here. Let us stand back then with the Apostle John, where in the 14th verse of the first chapter of his gospel, he talks about the word becoming flesh and tabernacling amongst us. The thrust then of the tabernacle imagery points to Jesus Christ. He is the light of the world, even as the menorah in the tabernacle is shedding light in God's dwelling place. He is the bread of life, even as that showbread on the table is reminding Israel that God is their spiritual food. He is the high priest and mediator of our salvation, even as that tabernacle has the movement in and out of the high priest of the old covenant. He is the one through whom our prayers ascend to heaven, even as the cloud of incense ascends daily from the altar of incense in the tabernacle. He is the one, Lord Jesus Christ, brings us near unto God because he has broken down the barrier of sin. He has pierced that veil which bars us from the presence of the most holy God. He has the law written on his heart. He has the embodiment of what is inside the Ark of the Covenant on his own soul. His blood is the covering for our sinful guilt. His righteous life is the covering for our unrighteous life. His person and work is the ground of mercy for our sinful misery and unworthiness. This tabernacle imagery points to Christ. In its essence, it is uh, uh, directing us away from this earthly, external, physical uh, entity to the one who is the very tabernacle of God in the midst of men, the one who is the very incarnation of the dwelling place of God, the one where God and man meet once and for all, even as that Old Testament tabernacle was called the meeting place between God and man. All right, now we come to verse 6, and now we switch gears a little bit in this Uh, opening section, 
this section, which is bracketed by the inclusio words of regulation, regulations in verse 1, regulations in verse 10. And so we have that framework paradigm here. But in verse 6, we're moving from the architecture and the furniture of the tabernacle proper to something else. And what are we moving to in verses 6 and following? The significance of the use of it. When? Ben said the actual significance of the use of it. When? Every day? On the Day of Atonement. So we are moving in verses 6 to 10 to the significance of the tabernacle as a, a part of the economy of the Old Testament to Yom Kippur. Which in Hebrew means Day of Atonement. From the mercy seat, the lid on the mercy seat, which was called the Kippurim in Hebrew, the place of atonement. All right, so verses 6 to 10 are now featuring what goes on in the tabernacle, but what goes on in the tabernacle on one day in the year, namely Yom Kippur. So in verse 6, he begins by talking about the outer tabernacle. I'm using the New American Standard. Once again, I don't know what your versions say there, but the high priest enters the outer tabernacle. What is he talking about with this outer tabernacle? Anyone? The holy place. It's the first room. Okay. Then in verse 7, but into the second, only the high priest. Where is he moving now? Into the holy of holies or most holy place. Very good. Now, notice it says that he comes once a year. During what season of the year? In the fall, isn't it? It's in the fall. What is the date of Yom Kippur this year? This fall? It will begin at sunset tomorrow night. And the Jewish community will observe Yom Kippur from sunset October 7 to dusk on October 8th. It will last approximately 25 hours. Well, how does a modern-day Jew observe Yom Kippur? Well, he begins with a fast, and he will fast, at least those that are able, they do make exceptions for persons who are not well, and for pregnant women and babies. Uh, they uh, They do fast for 25 hours. And during this time of fasting, they uh, go through a litany of repentance. Now, that litany of repentance is followed by a time of feasting, when the fast is over, and a sequence of litany of prayers. At the end of the observance of the day, or of the 25-hour period, they all say to one another, do you know what they say to one another? Next year in Jerusalem. Next year in Jerusalem. Why, why do the Jewish 
people say this. Looking for the Messiah. Why else? Jerusalem is pictured in prophecies as, as, as uh, the fulfillment of all that is spoken about. Why do they want to go to Jerusalem? They want the temple rebuilt. They want sacrifice because when the Jewish world tomorrow observes Yom Kippur, will they be having any priestly sacrifices? They have any blood sacrifices? In certain Hasidic Jewish communities, for instance, in Brooklyn and other Jewish ghettos, they may do it. They will do it secretly because they long to have the blood. They may sacrifice chickens. But they realize as a group that they do not have any temple in which to observe sacrifice, blood sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. Next year in Jerusalem, the Jerusalem above is where we invite the Jewish world to a Jerusalem eternal in the heavens. Not just next year, but forever. At the feet of Yeshua Messiah, the one who has opened the way up into that city for all, from Jewish and Gentile alike, all open access into the very throne room of God, no veil and barrier, no necessity for the blood of bulls and goats or for a priesthood which is sprinkling the blood of any old covenant upon a mercy seat in a building, but the precious blood of Jesus, the very Son of God, who has sprinkled his blood before the heavenly tabernacle once and for all. Oh, world of Jewish men, women, and children, come to this Jerusalem today and forever. There is our plea, along with the Apostle Paul, who grieved for his heart's sake that Israel had rejected the day of her visitation. We plead with them, echoing their own cry, the cry of their heart, reaching out and yearning for a final temple, final sacrifice, final Jerusalem. We say to them, it is already here. Come and welcome You need no bloodline identity to be admitted. You need no racial distinction to be welcome. You need no tradition to come into this eternal and everlasting arena. You need only the Son of God. Do not delay. Come and find in him the rest in a Jerusalem 
that is beyond your dreams and beyond anything on that piece of real estate at the edge of the Mediterranean Sea. For you see, it was never about that piece of real estate anyway. All that piece of real estate was to do was to draw the hearts of those people who believed in that Old Testament era up to a Zion which was everlasting and a Jerusalem whose builder and maker was God. Isn't that what Abraham was looking for? No. Please do not absolutize the earth or Jerusalem here below, who is not the mother of us all. Please do not absolutize a temple built with brick and stone when Jesus himself said, I am the temple, destroy this temple and I will raise it up. I am the only temple you need. And do not trample underfoot the blood of the everlasting covenant. Well, as you can see, our hearts reach out to the Jewish world because of the oracles of God, because of the promises to the fathers, because they understand some of this Old Testament lore. And yet, and yet, have been blinded by themselves, blinded by their self-righteousness, blinded by their ethnic pride and, and, and individuation, blinded to miss the one who could save them. From their sins. All right, Leviticus 16 is the central chapter of the institution of Yom Kippur. And as a footnote here, take a look at the book of Leviticus in the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible. We actually find that the book of Leviticus is the keystone to the Pentateuch. Numbers and Deuteronomy on one side, Exodus and Genesis on the other. If we were thinking of the Pentateuch as an archway, then the book of Leviticus is the central keystone of the archway. Or we can also see the book of Leviticus as the hinge point of the Pentateuch, of the five books of Moses. Now, it's too bad that the modern-day church doesn't see the importance of the centrality in Leviticus in the construction and structure of the Pentateuch. Uh, there's only one place where I know there's any work on Leviticus being done, and it's down at the Trinity OPC in Bothell, Washington, where Reverend Mark Linkema has been preaching through Leviticus for several months. Uh, more is the pity that others do not follow his lead, but in any event, I also want you to note something about Leviticus 16. If the book of Leviticus is the keystone to the Pentateuch, the hinge of the first five books of the Bible, 
then Leviticus 16 is the keystone to the book of Leviticus itself. There are seven sections to the book of Leviticus. And there are three on one side of Leviticus 16 and three on the other side of Leviticus 16. There are three structural units on each side of Leviticus 16 so that the whole hinge point of the book of Leviticus is the Day of Atonement. That is the swing point of the whole book, even as the book itself is the swing point of the whole Pentateuch. Then why do you not hear sermons from the book of Leviticus? If it is so key to not only the drama of redemption, Day of Atonement, but the key to the structure of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. I will lead you to meditate upon the answer to that question. But you have no ground for excuse, uh, no sin of ignorance anymore about the importance of the book of Leviticus. All right, I'm stealing a line from this verse in verse 7. What are these sins of ignorance? Very good. That's exactly right, Kay. The first seven chapters of the book of Leviticus specify types of offering, types of sacrifice. There is, first of all, in the first chapter of Leviticus, the burnt offering. Then we also have a grain or meal offering, grain being, you know, like corn or barley or wheat. And we have what are called guilt offerings or trespass offerings. Now, all of those offerings, as Kay pointed out, are for particular sins. In general, you bring the burnt offering because you know you're a sinner in general. So the burnt offering consumes the whole victim. It's a holocaust. Holocaust is not a term that refers to Jewish persecution during the Second World War per se. It's a term that refers to a consumption of a whole offering on a, on an altar. It's a word which goes all the way back into Greco-Roman mythology. It's just been borrowed to emphasize how uh, the Germans attempted to eradicate the whole body of the Jewish nation. Well, at any rate, the burnt offering uh, indicates this general uh, in a general sinfulness that all mankind have. Then the meal offering is an offering of the fruits of one's labor. You bring the grain as a symbol of what you have produced from the ground. The guilt offering is an offering in which you remember that you've done some particular specific offense. And so you are bringing an offering to atone for that particular offense. The trespass offering is an offering in which you bring a, a, a gift because you must now make not only uh, atonement for your sin, but you must make restitution 
In other words, something is required of you because you have done something that has deprived someone else of either their property or their rights or whatever. And so now you must make restitution. It's somewhat, it's what's behind uh, Zacchaeus saying he's going to uh, pay back four times as much as what he had depra- uh, what he had defrauded. Alright, so these sins of ignorance are the ones that weren't specifically specified that you recalled. And Kay was right. The ones that you had forgotten about or you just had not, uh, you weren't aware of, you weren't conscious of them. <clears throat> so it's not actually sins of omission. It's just sins that have been overlooked. And so uh, the Day of Atonement is uh, one sacrifice covers all. Not only reviewing or renewing the specific sins and offerings that you've brought, but also covering anything that you have forgotten about, anything that you were even ignorant of, something that you didn't even think was a sin because you weren't persuaded of it. You did it in ignorance. On the Day of Atonement, it is paid for, and it is expunged. Praise God. How much better is the one sacrifice of Christ for such things? How much more gracious is that offering of Christ that we do not need to bring bulls and goats and the ritual of a priestly caste? All right, now he comes into the holy place. And notice in verse 8, that the Holy Spirit is indicating that he does this on the Day of Atonement once a year because the way into the holy place, what holy place is he talking about here? Is this the outer room? Okay. This is the inside, the most holy place, what we would call the Holy of Holies. It has not been disclosed while the outer table, there's the outer room, there's the holy place, what we've been calling the holy place. While it is still standing. Now, what's he after here with this phrase that has not been disclosed? Ben? What's going to be disclosed? The way into that holy place, which is opened up because of Christ's final finished sacrifice. So it had not been revealed yet. And yet the Holy Spirit is testifying, even in that Old Testament era, that the way is not yet revealed. In other words, there's something there that they were supposed to grasp and to look forward, to anticipate. Because as long as that outer room was standing, as long as that veil was hanging, as long as this physical building was there, the way into the most holy place had not yet been opened up. Notice the implication of this. In this physical externalism, there is something that in and of itself is inadequate. It cannot itself bring the open access into God's presence that is necessary. This lesser era 
this poorer era in the history of redemption is bound up by this physical imagery. And that physical imagery is itself a barrier, even as there's a physical barrier between the holy place and the holy of holies. That physical imagery is itself a barrier to the open access, free, open access. No barriers, no restrictions, no tangible limitations, no physical constructions. It's open by the Holy Spirit, through the Holy Spirit, in and through the pioneer and perfecter of the way, namely Jesus, the Son of God. What a more wonderful dispensation, a more wonderful age of these better blessings, this better age to come in Christ Jesus. So that we are weaned, are we not? The Holy Spirit weaning us away from this physicality in our worship, from this tangibility in our worship, from this wanting to have things, created things, in order to underscore our worship. Doesn't Jesus himself accentuate this when he says, the Father seeketh them that worship in spirit and in truth? Yes, you see, this better age is the age of the spirit. It is not the age of the flesh and the substance and all this tangible rigmarole and pomp and circumstance. It is the age of access through the spirit. You understand that in Rome, you can't do that. In Rome, you have to go through the physical. That's your only way to the invisible, to the spiritual. You cannot get there directly through the communion of the Holy Spirit. You can only get there through the physical priest, the visible church, the vicar of Christ. Is that what the Holy Spirit is signifying in Hebrews 9.8? I don't think so, and neither did the Protestant Reformation. All right, that brings us to the phrase in verse 9, the time present. Symbol for the time present. What's he talking about with this phrase, the time present? Is he talking about the time present in that Old Testament setting? That present time? Or is he talking about the time present to the audience that he's writing to? In other words, the people that are reading this letter. Symbol for the time present according to which gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. Does the rest of the verse shift the sense of time present to one or the other of those options? And if so, which? The time of the functioning of the tabernacle. Very good, Ben. Why? Because notice, the gifts and sacrifices that are offered there, which cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. So he's talking about the time present to those who were bringing these sacrifices under that administration of the old covenant. 
It would be interesting, would it not? If he were talking about the time present to his readers? Would he be suggesting then that his readers were somehow tempted to return to that kind of physicality of visible gifts and sacrifices? We have suggested from time to time that the difficulty in this community, the problem in this church or this community to which he is writing, is their hankering back for the old era. It's not that they're just Jews or converted Jews. They may, in fact, be Gentiles who are hiding under Judaism because they want to escape Roman persecution. But they're attracted to this Old Testament aura because you can lay hold on it. I can grab that priest. I can hold on to my prayer book. I can, I can embrace the feet of that statue of the Virgin Mary. You see, of the, all this physicality. No, no, that's not what they were doing in this community. I don't mean to suggest that, but my point is it's like that. And so if he were suggesting the time present to the audience that is reading this letter, is it a subtle rebuke to them that they, too, are holding too fast to this physicality externalism, the formalism of Old Testament worship and not the liberation of worship in spirit and truth? Well, this phrase, perfect the conscience. Obviously, conscience is an internal state of man. It's an inner state. And so he is suggesting here that these gifts and sacrifices, these external rites, cannot perfect the internal conscience. Now, I want to expand upon that in a moment as we look at this indicative imperative Paradigm, but right now I want to round off this section, these 10 verses, by looking at that word time, that phrase, time of reformation. <clears throat> this time of reformation would stand in contrast to what time? Verse 9. Time then present. The time present in verse 9 would be contrasted with the time of Reformation in verse 10, which would then uh, confirm what Ben pointed out that is talking about the former era, the time in which the tabernacle was operative. So the time of Reformation is what time? Frank, what time is that? Perry? The, the time after Christ. It's, it's the time after Christ. It's the time we're in, right? This is the time of Reformation. It's the time since Christ came, which reforms that regulations of the tabernacle, priesthood, veil of the tabernacle, bringing the blood to the mercy seat, etc., etc. In other words, this time of reformation is advancing us through these ten verses from the tabernacle in terms of its physicality to the event, the central event of the tabernacle, and saying, that's all been reformed. It's been transformed. 
So the contrast between the time then and the time since then, which is this time of Reformation in which we now live. Yes, Scott. But if he's talking about the present time being the New Testament era, then you have like an inclusio of some sorts, or maybe not an inclusio, but you've got both parallel to one another. <clears throat> that is possible, but I don't think really so. I mean, it, it is. Let, let me put it this way. It's conceivable, hypothetically, but I don't think exegetically it is accurate because I think what he is doing is continuing his contrastive paradigm, which he has begun in chapter 7, contrasting the old with the new, you know, fundamentally. And here, contrasting what was present to them at their time in the former era with the time of Reformation, which is the latter era, the better age, the age in which we are now going to transition into the rest of this chapter when he's going to focus upon the blood of Christ and the more excellent sacrifice. So now are you undermining your thought that it could be the present time? I, I only suggested the present time to, to uh, play the devil's advocate. No, I, I'm, not in, I'm not in favor of that. I'm just throwing it out as a as something to consider. Uh, so consequently, uh, whatever explanation that I may have implied there was to uh, trap you. No, not really. Just to get, get your wheels turning. All right, now, uh, I've given you uh, on your outline some uh, phrases which cause us to think about what this ninth verse is placing before us, namely a consideration of the proposition. Is the external arena able to to effect an internal change in nature or conscience? Do the externals effect, that is, produce, bring into existence a change in internal nature. Well, let's consider the internal disposition, the internal nature, the conscience. For that's the word he uses here. This is an internal reality. Let's consider the internal conscience. If the internal conscience is going to be altered or changed, it's going to be changed internally, is it not? Because it's an internal reality, it's going to have to be changed in an internal manner. That internal nature, that is the natural man's conscience, is in need of being changed. Because that natural man's conscience is at enmity with God, correct? Romans 8. All right, his conscience, it's not just his will, it's just not his attitude, his whole conscience is at enmity. It is averse to God's will. So his inner condition, his internal condition is perverse to divine transformation, to divine alteration. It resists. Does it have any inner force in and of itself to change itself? Does it have the capacity by making New Year's resolutions to change its inner conscience? So we see we're asking about the power or the effective power, 
to alter this inner condition of the conscience, or to use our writer's words, to perfect the conscience. All right, so we begin with the premise that there is an internal indisposition to the will of God. There is an internal indisposition in the conscience to the will of God. Are the gifts and sacrifices offered at the external tabernacle able to affect, capable of causing an internal change in that nature? Are these gifts and sacrifices able to alter that conscience? Frank? No. Anybody think yes? We're all on the same page. Very good. All right, so these externals cannot affect or produce or bring into existence an internal change. They are only outward forms. All right, now let's take the next step. Are the commands or imperatives addressed to the external consciousness of the natural man? The commands or imperatives addressed to the external consciousness of the natural man, are they able to effect, are they capable of causing an internal change in nature? And here I want to use an example from the scriptures. Understand what I'm asking. Are the commands or the imperatives addressed to the consciousness of the natural man, are they able to effect or cause an internal change in that natural man's nature? Believe on the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved. Acts 16.31. Let's break that statement down. That's the Apostle Paul's statement. Let's break that statement down. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. What kind of verb is that word believe? It is an imperative. Very good. It is a command. What kind of a verb is that phrase, you shall be saved? It is an indicative. It is the state indicated. The state indicated is a state of salvation. All right, so the imperative, believe on the Lord Jesus. Indicative, you shall be saved. Is this imperative command of the Apostle Paul able to affect the indicative state of salvation? Okay? No. She says no. Frank, you want to argue with that? No. Anybody want to argue with that? We're on the same page again. Very good. In other words, the very command, the imperative, does not carry with it the effectual cause of altering the state of the soul into the indicative state, the indicative condition, the state of salvation. Just saying it doesn't do it. All right, let's take another example. So here, the external mandate is in and of itself powerless to produce an internal state of salvation as indicated. That we note from thinking clearly about believe on the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved. Let's take another example. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and remove the foreskins of your heart. Jeremiah 4, verse 4. Circumcise and remove. What kind of verbs are those? 
Ben, you're our grammatical expert here. Those are imperatives again. Notice here are these commands again. Is the imperative circumcise and remove able to affect the change in the heart indicated? Okay? No. No. You're consistent. Very good. (laughs) We're all on the same page again. No, they're not. The very imperative cannot bring about the internal change indicated. So, the external imperative is unable to affect the internal change of heart. Next example, which is a paraphrase of Leviticus 18.5. Do this and you shall live. Where's the imperative? Ben? Do. Do. Where's the indicative? Shall live. Shall live. Is the imperative able to affect or produce the state of life indicated? No, it is not. Please remember that. This is a very important text in contemporary discussions. Because there are those that are saying this text suggests that there is a meritorious ability in Israel to keep that commandment. Because God says, do this, they shall live by doing it and live by meritorious obedience. Is that what the phrase is implying? We're still on the same page. No external imperative suggests an internal capacity. We do believe as Reformed believers, as Calvinists, in total inability, do we not? Does that apply to Israel at Mount Sinai? Are they totally unable sinners? Yes, they are totally unable sinners. So, even though God says, do this and you shall live, these are total unable sinners, just like the Philippian jailer. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, thou shalt. He's still a total unable sinner. He's not able to do that, is he? Neither is Israel Sinai. You get it. Are we still on the same page? All right. Now, in every case then, The imperative is unable and totally unable at that to affect the indicative. The imperative is unable to affect the indicative. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, thou shalt be saved. The imperative does not affect the indicative. Circumcise the foreskins of your heart. The imperative does not bring in the indicative. Do this and thou shalt live. The imperative does not affect or produce the indicative. Now, what's the most common imperative example in the Bible? What's the most common imperative example in the Bible? What's the most common list of imperatives in the Bible? The Ten Commandments. Kill not. Steal not. Covet not. And on we go. Is the imperative able to affect the state indicated. In other words, kill not, and that produces a murderless heart? Covet not, and that produces a covetousless heart? Steal not, and that produces a steal not heart? Just saying it, does it produce it? Does it affect the internal disposition? We're still on the same page? 
No, so the commands of the law do not affect the indicatives of performance, of obedience, do they? Thus, the law is unable to affect the indicative state, namely an obedient heart or spirit. The law is unable to alter the internal state. Well, if the law is unable to alter the, inter, inter, the internal state, what's the point of the law? To make you aware of what? Of your inability, which means that you are what? You are unable, which means that you are what? A sinner, which means that you are what? In danger of what? Condemnation. The law can only condemn you. Okay? So the imperatives can't affect a change in your nature. It can only say that you need a change in nature and say that you're under a state of condemnation. So the law, as an imperative order, is unable to affect the indicative state. Well then, how is one saved if he is unable to believe on the Lord Jesus? How then is one to have a circumcised heart if he is unable to remove the foreskin of his soul? How then is one to live if he is unable to do the imperatives of God? How then is one to avoid condemnation if he is unable to perform the commands of the law? How? By grace you have been saved through faith. It is the gift of God. Ephesians 2, 8. How shall we be saved if we are unable to obey the imperative? God will do it in us. God will give a believing heart. Saved by grace through faith, through believing. God will give a believing. It is a gift. A believing heart is a gift. God will give you a believing heart and you shall be saved. Believe, imperative, and you shall be saved, indicative. And God says, I will save indicative by giving you what I commanded you to do imperative I will save you indicative by giving you the believing heart imperative God says my indicative will effect your imperative my gracious indicative will effect your obligatory imperative Do you see? Grace affects the imperative. Grace must precede the imperative. Even as grace must bring them out of bondage before they ever get the law at Sinai. Grace must be first. So that the covenant of Sinai is anchored in grace. It is not anchored in a covenant of works. Could never be. 
grace must precede the imperative for grace alone. God's gift alone. I will give you salvation by grace and then you shall believe. My internal grace will affect your internal indisposition. Grace effects the indicative to fulfill the imperative. Grace goes before the fulfilling of the law. The indicative act of God precedes the imperative obedience of man. Are we still on the same page? How do we answer this imperative, indicative tandem? By reversing and placing the indicative at the beginning through the grace of God, through the transforming, internally renovating grace of God, who changes that inner disposition of the heart, not only to believe, but then to will and to do. Make me able, O Lord, in the day of your power. You must make me able because I am totally unable. And so how is one to have a circumcised heart if he is unable to remove the foreskin of his soul? The Lord your God will circumcise your heart. To love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Deuteronomy 36, right out of the Pentateuch itself at the Sinaitic covenant, God says, I will circumcise your heart so that you shall love me with your heart and soul. God will circumcise the heart, indicative, and enable it to love the Lord God with heart and soul, imperative. God graciously removes the foreskin of our soul so as to effect love and affection for him from the heart. By grace, says the Lord, I will circumcise your heart and you will love me with all your soul. My indicative will affect your imperative. And finally, how is one to live if he is unable to do the imperatives of God. Thus says the Lord, I will give you life. And from that life effect the imperatives of my will. My indicative will enable your imperative. My grace will effect your obligation. I will give you the gift. And in that gift... Out of that gift, you will do my commandments. Gracious indicative precedes moral imperative. My grace alone, says the Lord, will make you able to will and to do. 
my solely gracious indicative shall enable your holy obligatory imperative. Grace. Grace. Grace, the indicative effects command the imperative. Don't ever forget what Augustine said. Command what, give what you command, O Lord. Command what you will, O Lord. Notice the sequence in that statement in Augustine's Confessions. Give what you command. What state of the verb is that? Got indicative. indicative. Command what you will. What state of the verb is that? Scott? Imperative. Imperative. Notice how Augustine places it. The indicative before the imperative. Give what you command, O Lord. My, my heart is unable. I am totally disabled in heart and soul and conscience. Give what you command. Then command what you will, O oh Lord. This is the heart of the Pauline doctrine of grace. This is the heart of the Mosaic doctrine of grace. It's in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6 and chapter 30. It's there. This is the heart of the biblical doctrine of grace. And no Calvinist should be confused about it at all. Augustine wasn't. Calvin wasn't. The Reformed Confessions weren't. Then why, why is there confusion in the church today? Over this paradigm. Well, the traditions of men are more important than the word of God. But we are on the same page, are we not? We will stand in the grace of God to accomplish the imperatives of his will. Scott? Also, what you're saying there by the fact that Leviticus is continually talking about sacrifice, which is ultimately grounded in the merit and death of Christ, so that if that stands behind, that justifying life stands behind the internal renovation, and that merit of Christ is the basis of it, there cannot be any genuine human merit. Amen. It is the merit of another. It is not the merit of anyone coming to that tabernacle. That's grace. That's what grace is. Well, I graciously adjourn you for five minutes. We'll pick up at verse 11. And we want to note in verse 11 the tense of the verb. appeared 
which is a past tense, translated in some of your versions perhaps entered, which is parallel in verse 12, past tense. And if you'll notice verse 24, the word appear occurs again in the present tense. And then in verse 28, the word appeared, appears again in the future tense. Now, it's not the same Greek word in each of those occurrences, so I can't make the uh, argument of a precise uh, verbal uh, 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 parallel. But nonetheless, it's interesting to notice the progress in the tenses. Christ appeared time past to effect redemption. Christ appears, verse 24, time present to intercede in an ongoing way. And Christ shall appear time future at the end of the age. There may be then in this uh, pattern of 11, 24, and 28 a uh, simple redemptive historical paradigm from the past to present to future. Or there may be a larger bracket here. Okay, If we think of verse 11... When he appeared and bracketed with verse 28, when he shall appear, if we would bracket those two together, what would we be, shall we say, enclosing? Notice what he says in verse 28. He uses the numeral what? Second. Okay. He's going to come the second time. So what could we say about verse 11? First time. So we have the first advent and the second advent of Christ bracketing these uh, uh, verses 11 to 28. We could say there's a large redemptive historical bracket. And in between, in between verses 11 and 28, then a description of the precious benefits of Christ between the first advent and the second advent. Advent. Verse 11, these good things to come are parallel to the time of Reformation in verse 10. These good things to come are the things that Christ ministers to us in between his first and second coming. Particularly, what are they? In verse 12, it is eternal redemption. That's one of the precious good things to come, one of the benefits that Christ ministers to us between the first and second advent. In verse 14, the cleansing of the conscience. That's another one of the precious benefits that Christ brings to us in between the times, between the first and second coming. And finally, in verse 24, he is present before God on our behalf. That is, he is before the face of God in our place. That is another great benefit of the finished work of Christ for his people. Now, this tabernacle in verse 11 is the tabernacle not of this creation, as we noted uh, previously. This is a heavenly tabernacle, as verse 24 specifies. He has entered heaven itself, and chapter 8, verse 1, also specifies the uh, right hand of the majesty in heaven where Christ is. This tabernacle, then, where Christ ministers on our behalf, is in the eschatological dimension. 
He is there in an arena which is not of this creation. That means that we have here a journey motif. The journey motif in verses 1 to 10 is the movement from the earthly tabernacle to verses 11 to 28 to the heavenly tabernacle. Christ himself takes us on a pilgrim journey. He takes us from earth, the earthly tabernacle, to heaven, to the heavenly tabernacle, where he eternally intercedes and ministers for us. Now, in verse 12, the phrase eternal redemption raises an interesting question as to whether this term eternal here is uh, referring to duration through time. That is an atemporal, that is a redemption without time, eternal in extent. Or is eternal here something richer, namely the quality of life in that dimension, the quality of a redeemed life in an eternal state. It is true that the quality of that life will be without time and endless. That is true. And yet, is it the eternity aspect of the redemption? In other words, the quality of the life of Christ itself in that dimension Is that the quality of life that is being underscored by the eternal redemption that he has secured for us? And so you are you are drawn to think more profoundly and deeply about what the quality of life would be in an eternal realm. What would that be like? What kind of life quality would we enjoy? Not just its endless duration, but its rich appropriation, increasingly appropriating more and more of the rich person and grace of the Lord God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, in verse 13, he talks about this cleansing of the flesh. And you'll notice that he contrasts that cleansing with the cleansing of the conscience in verse 14. Here we have this uh, comparison or this contrast between the external and the internal once again, the external cleansing of the flesh, which is outward, fleshly, as he specifies, contrasted with the cleansing which is internal, inward, cleansing which comes by the Spirit, Once again, we pause to step back a moment from these two verses and their contrastive emphasis, wondering whether these readers, this community of Christians is hung up on externalism, hung up on the fleshly, hung up on the outward trappings, hung up on what satisfies their, shall we say, physical longings or their aesthetic longings. Is that what is behind his contrastive emphasis over and over. It's like a rolling narrative. He is continually driving them away from the physical and the outward and the external to the invisible and the spiritual and the eternal. And so in verse 14, he specifies the eternal spirit. What spirit is this? 
Ben, what spirit do you think this is? Your version has a capital S on that spirit. What what spirit is this? Verse 14. Are you shaking your head at the Holy Spirit? Or are you saying, well, no, yeah, it has to be the Holy Spirit. It has to be the Holy Spirit. Ben says it has to be the Holy Spirit. Uh, Terry, I saw you got, with a little kind of your brow being furrowed a little bit there. You, you, you're, just, you're just wondering, okay? You, you haven't come to a conclusion. No, it is the Holy Spirit. You think it's the Holy Spirit. You agree with Ben, all right? Uh, who disagrees with Ben? Loretta, you want to risk your, your reputation? She agrees. This, ben, you're unanimous. You've got, you're all on the same page? Well, my, my uh, margin note says that it's also the, uh, well, his eternal spirit. Uh, well, let, let's forget the margin, Ben. You're going to stick with, what, you're going to change your vote. No, no. All right, right. He's, he's uh, sticking to his vote. He's a man of conviction. All right, you're all on the same page, the Holy Spirit? Well, then why didn't he say Holy Spirit like he did in verse 8? Look up at verse 8. He says Holy Spirit there, right? Did he forget himself and just leave out holy here? No, he didn't forget himself. Because he's not talking about the Holy Spirit. Well, what's he mean? Eternal Spirit. If it's not the Holy Spirit, Christ offers through the eternal Spirit, what's he talking about? Audrey? The inner Spirit. Forget what I'm saying. The soul? Yeah. You mean like your soul? Yeah, Christ. So Christ is through his soul? Christ's soul in us. Christ's soul in us? Nope. No. You're on the right track and you're thinking about the invisible aspect. But is it the invisible aspect of Christ's human soul? Or is it the invisible aspect of something else? Holy Spirit. No, we've already ruled out the Holy Spirit. What? It's his own divinity. It's his own divine nature. It's his own divine spiritual nature, his own divine essence. So here, as Gerhardus Voss points out, it is not the Holy Spirit. It is the essential deity of the Son of God. You want another proof text for the deity of Christ? Here it is. How can he do that? Why do we need him to be eternal deity? Frank, why do we need that? Do we need that? No, God does. Your name, Frank? Sorry. Uh, Frank? Well, he is God. Yes, he is God. But why do we need that? Because we need a Savior. What? Because we need a Savior. Uh, sure. I mean, Is that the blood of bulls and goats? Good, good, isn't that good enough? No, it's outward. How about an angel? Sir, I'm sorry. How about an angel? No. Why not? Ah, there it is. We need an eternal being. 
to an eternal nature or essence because because God needs it because He is Infinite. infinite. Well, let's get beyond infinite. Let's get to eternal. Eternal. Yes, eternal. We need an eternal person to make an eternal sacrifice. So, who is the only one qualified? The one that has the eternal nature, the eternal spirit, the eternal essence. Okay, so he's pointing out the absolute essential character of what is necessary for our redemption. We have to have the one who is God Himself eternal in his own being, lay down his life as an eternal sacrifice for an eternal number of sins. Yes? Why did he use the pronoun his? I really don't know that I can answer that um, because I don't know that it's that crucial. Um, The reflexive that he offers himself would would indicate that he's reflexively thinking about his eternal spirit. But at any rate, um, the, the more interesting point is that he doesn't forget himself and uh, say the Holy Spirit without putting holy in because he's already used that in verse 8 up above. At least that's the way I think uh, that it falls out. And these dead works are opposed to what is uh, applicable to the living God. Uh, The living God is the antithesis of the pagan gods who are dead. And the dead works are works which are devoted to death, sinful works. He's not talking here about the Old Testament economy as dead works or the works of the Old Testament law as being uh, dead works. Now, in verse 15, a profound remark. Redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. What is he saying there? Come on, all you 21st century Calvinists. What's he saying there? It sounds like, okay. old, like Old Testament people were saved through Christ's what? Through Christ's death. Amen. Exactly what he's saying. Sounds like Paul and Romans. Sounds, like Roman. sounds like the whole New Testament suggestion. All right. Now, the benefit of the work of Christ. In other words... This amazing statement is something that our Reformed theology has picked out from the time of the 16th century on. That the salvation of Old Testament believers was the very same basis as New Testament believers. They were saved by the work of Christ in prospect. So that retrospectively, this writer is saying, look, this blood applied to them. This blood which has been shed in these last days applied retrospectively to them as prospectively it benefited them even though it hadn't been shed yet. The grace of God granting in advance the full effect 
of the sacrifice of his son in due time. Now, it is true, they didn't know his name and all the details. The fullness of it hadn't been displayed, but nonetheless, they got the nub of the issue. They got the heart of those that were saved, were saved by grace through faith in the blood of Christ promised and displayed and typed, foreshadowed before them. And holding on to that prospect, they received Christ in his grace and mercy. Therefore, we don't say that there are two different ways of salvation. There's a way of salvation for those under the old covenant, and there's another way of salvation for those under the new covenant. There's one way of salvation. It is a unified covenant of grace from Genesis 3:15 on to the end of the age. Every covenant after Genesis 3 is a covenant of grace, testifying to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and applying his benefits before the time. There's grace for grace. Yes. And when we get to chapter 11, we'll see even more richly how this flows out. Now, verse 16 and 17 together. Where the, where the language covenant and testament is used. And so we need to define testament to begin with. What is a testament? Have you been the beneficiary of a testament, Loretta? I think so. What's a testament? Well, it's, it's uh, something you've written down that will be given to someone else. Okay. In other words, in our, in our culture, we call it a what? A will, yes. A testament is a inheritance or legacy as in a will. And it comes from a testator. Who's the testator? The one who is dying. Correct. The one who is dying makes a testamentary declaration. A testamentary declaration of an inheritance. So that the death, and in your little outline, in parenthesis, the death of the testator yields a testament for the heir. Which is what he's defining here in verses 16 and 17. All right, now what's a covenant? A covenant is a relational arrangement sealed by the death of a substitute victim. Covenant, a relational arrangement sealed by the death of a substitute victim. Now, this is what is being considered in the blood covenant at Sinai, as well as the blood covenant at Calvary in verses 11 to 14. The blood of bulls and goats seals the Mosaic Covenant in which the relationship between God and Israel is disposed or arranged. The blood of Christ seals the New Covenant in which the relation between God and the eschatological Israel is arranged or disposed. In both covenants... The relationship is confirmed and sealed by the death of a substitute victim. As if to say, 
May this be done to me if I break this covenant relation. May I be divided as the animal itself is divided. May I be slain. May I be consumed on the altar if I violate the arrangement or the disposition of this covenant. Well then, why switch the categories? Why switch the covenant disposition to testamentary disposition here in Hebrews 9? What is this writer doing? You can't count the gallons of ink that commentators have spilled over this thing. Even Gerhardus Voss writes a detailed article on it. How to sort it all out? Well, let's begin with the structure of this unit. Let's notice that in verse 15, he talks about a covenant of the first order, namely the Mosaic order. So this is a covenant of blood. In verse 18, He talks about a covenant again of that first order, a covenant of blood. But in verse 16 and verse 17, he talks about a testament. We have a structural paradigm here. In fact, we have a reverse chiasm in which our author is mirroring the relationship between covenant and testimony. And the signal that he's shifting gears, that he's moving from blood covenant to testament, is in that word inheritance at the end of verse 15. He signals to you that he is switching gears. So he's using the same Greek word. The Greek word is diatheke. He's using the same Greek word with two separate distinctive meanings, and he's sandwiching them in such a way, in a chiastic way. Remember, chiasm is a mirror reflection. He's sandwiching them structurally so that you you will see that they were both reciprocal and mirror reflections of one another. He is enriching the word covenant. That's what he's doing. He's making it far more profound. Using his rhetorical skill... He is playing on the dual meaning of the Greek word. The dual meaning of the word diatheke, or covenant. That is, covenant in Greek may mean a testament, as it does in verses 16 and 17, as our author shows. Or covenant may mean a relational disposition, as it does in verses 15 and 18, as our author shows. The chiastic mirror here resolves the exegetical tensions and says that our author is far more profound than the modern commentators. Because you see, he is drawing on a unified element of death. That's the unifying motif in both of these words whether it is covenant or disposition, death is at the center of both. The death of the testator, the death 
of the covenant victim. The covenant disposition by blood is not accomplished without death. The testamentary disposition of inheritance is not accomplished without death. It is death which is at the center of the multiformed or the rich vocabulary of the imagery of covenant testament in the writer of Hebrews' mind. He's leading us in a path that virtually no other biblical writer leads us, whether Old or New Testament. And you are shut up to the fact that if he is working under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, you've got to come to grips with this and not try to choose either or here. This is a good old Calvinistic exegetical writer of Hebrews. It is a both and. It is not an either or. Because you're the heirs of a great legacy through the death of the testator who gave it to you. And it was his blood that sealed that relationship between himself and you. You get double riches, covenant and testament from this writer's profound reflection upon the nuance of a Greek word. All right, now, we noted last week when we laid out the structure of this chapter as a whole that verses 18 to 22 are a chiasm in their own right, where the emphasis is upon the shedding of blood, verse 18 and verse 22. Here we have to notice the impact of the shed blood. What is happening when the blood of bulls and goats, calves and goats is shed? Is it merely the washing away of sin? Verse 22. Or is, as we indicated earlier, the life in the blood? And that that sprinkling of the blood of the covenant is an identification, a marking of us with the blood of the victim, marking us with the death blood to dramatize that we deserve the death. This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you, sprinkled upon you. It is sprinkled upon you because you deserve the blood death of this victim. That victim then substitutes for your life. His death or its death pays the price of your death in your place. Propitiation vicariously. Vicariously, notice what happens in verse 28. Look at that phrase, to bear the sins of many. From whence does that phrase arise? Where did he get that language? From Isaiah 53, verse 12. In fact, the Greek words for that phrase in Hebrews 9, 28 are exactly the same vocabulary of the Septuagint of Isaiah 53, verse 12. And in Isaiah 53, what are we talking about? 
We are talking about the Eved Yahweh. We are talking about the servant of the Lord. And what does he do? He gives his life as a ransom for many. He substitutes his life for the sake of many. This is a vicarious act. This is the act of a servant. A servant doesn't parade his life. A servant surrenders his life even unto death. As Christ, the eschatological servant, surrendered his life unto death. He hangs upon a cross of shame. He doesn't present himself to the world as a personality item. He is willing to bear our reproach so that we may have the reproach that we deserve borne away. All right, this notion then of vicarious substitution is in this section between 18 and 22 where we're talking about the shedding of the blood of Christ and its propitiatory effect. The fact that in being sprinkled upon us the substitutionary and satisfactory character of that blood is being demonstrated. All right, in verse 24... He uses the word antitype. It is the word copy in the English translation. And antitype here contrasts with the type. The type in chapter 8, verse 5, is the pattern. The pattern of the heavenly tabernacle. So the heavenly tabernacle is the type. And the antitype here in verse 24 is the earthly tabernacle, the copy. So we once again have this type-antitype paradigm that we've seen before in this epistle. The heavenly tabernacle, which is the type or pattern, casts its shadow upon the antitype, the earthly tabernacle. This uncreated heavenly arena casts its reflection upon the temporal arena. Even in the Old Testament, they were being drawn up into the type itself through the anti-type because of that aura of the eschatological tabernacle which overarched and overshadowed the earthly tabernacle of God. Verse 25, year by year, A high priest goes with his blood. This is obviously a reflection once again of what we saw in verses 6 through 10. Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. Then in verse 26 in the New American Standard, he says that Christ has appeared once at the consummation. Consummation. When we think of the word consummation, what event do we think of normally? A second coming. Then what's going on in verse 28? It's changing our definition of what's going on in verse 26, isn't it? 
obviously verse 28 is talking about the second coming. That's what we would usually describe as the consummation. So what's he mean by this word consummation in verse 26? Okay, fullness of times, as Paul would say in Galatians 4. So he's talking about what coming? First coming. First 26 is the first coming. 28 is the second coming. And what is sandwiched in between? Death. Death and judgment. Between the first and second coming, death and judgment. Correct? Correct. So notice how he is framing everything between the first advent and the second advent of Christ. The whole character of this era is the era of death and judgment. And also notice how often he uses that phrase, once for all. When we outlined the structure last week, we noted the rule of threes in 26, 27, and 28. That Greek word, hapax, which is so important to the writer of this epistle. Once for all. Once for all, he came in the first advent. Once for all, there is death and judgment to all mankind. Once for all, he will appear the second time. Ah, yes, but beyond the once for all, there's a millennium, there's a pre-tribulation rapture, there are three or four resurrections. There's a provisional kingdom before we have the final once for all kingdom. No, 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 no. You can't squeeze a thousand years into this. You can't squeeze seven year tribulation into this. You can't squeeze an any minute tribu- a rapture into this. You can't do it. Notice what he said. Once for all. This is finality. There's no other coming of Christ. There's no secret coming or secret rapture. There's one coming in incarnation. There's one coming in the end of the age. That's it. And in between, there is one reality for men and women and children. Death and judgment. That's it. No restoration of Jews to Palestine as if they're going to get another opportunity. No re-exemption of the ticking of the prophetic clock. No absence, no presence or absence of a parenthesis. This is a language of absolute finality. Once and for all, that's all there is. So when you walk away from the end of chapter 9, you're conscious of the perfection. This is what he's been talking about. Been talking about perfection of conscience. Been talking about perfection of sacrifice. He's been talking about perfection of the old and new covenant. This is the perfection of the ages. Only two ages. Present evil age and the age to come. The curtain comes down at the end of the age to come. When, verse 28, Jesus shall appear the second time, not to bear sin, but to those who eagerly await him for salvation. You've got to go through exegetical hoops to avoid this finality. I'm afraid your hula hoops won't work. Any questions? All right, in conclusion, briefly. We began with the earth in verse 1. 
We end with heaven in verse 28 when Christ appears from heaven. Notice the threefold use of heaven in verses 24 through 26. That is the paradigm of our journey from earth to heaven. It is the journey of eschatological Hebrews. This epistle is written to you as eschatological Hebrews. This chapter is written to you as pilgrims in the blood of Christ traveling to the heavenly tabernacle. In fact, you are already admitted to the presence of God through the one who has even now opened there a living way of access and appeared before the glory of God on your behalf. Now you encourage your heart as you focus and fix your eyes steadfastly on Jesus and on this living way of access through the blood of the everlasting covenant as you prepare to come to the Lord's table this coming Lord's Day. Come and welcome, because your heart rejoices in the end of your pilgrimage through Christ. Blessings on you. Any questions? I send you on your pilgrim way. Jesus sends you on your pilgrim way.